0: Okay, Okay. so we're doing special senses today. So sight we're doing today, hearing we're doing today, taste we're doing today, touch we're not doing today. We've already done touch a ton. We did it with this anterior and lateral spinal tracts and dorsal columns. We did it when we did the primary um, somatosensory cortex. And then we did touch again when we talked about pain and we talked about the nociceptors and the different mechanoreceptors. So we've done touch a lot. So we're not doing touch today. We're literally just doing sight, vision, taste, and smell. So what we're doing today is all your special senses. So remind, oh, wait, wait, wait. I have to go into slideshow. Remind me what cranial nerves are involved in special senses. So for smell, it is? Olfactory. Olfactory, cranial nerve number one. And then for vision, or, oh, let's do taste. Okay, let's do taste. So the gustatory center, mm-hmm. yes, that's going to be your primary center in the cortex. But what cranial nerves are involved? So there's, there's like two or three. Glossophan- three. Okay, glossopharyngeal does what? Moves the tongue, or no. Glossopharyngeal for taste does the posterior one-third of the tongue, right? These are good questions, hint, hint. So glossopharyngeal cranial number nine does a posterior one-third of the tongue for taste. What else does taste? What does the anterior two-thirds of the tongue for taste? Seven. Facial. And then what does the back of the throat, like the oropharynx, for taste? Ten. Okay, vagus. Okay. That's probably something you want to remember. Right? What cranial nerves are involved in these special senses. So vision is cranial nerve number? I heard two, which is also known as optic. Awesome. And then hearing is? Cranium number eight, which is also known as? Vestibular cochlear. And when we talked about the vestibular cochlear nerve, when we talked about the vestibular cochlear nerve, nerve, which is cranium number eight, we said it has two branches, right? Mm -hmm. It has a vestibular branch, which is for balance, and it has a... Cochlear branch, which is for hearing. hearing. So, voila, kind of number eight has two of the four special, uh, five, special senses. Yeah, five special senses. So, I would definitely remember that. You already knew these, mm-hmm. but it would be good to really, really know them. Did you add the answers? Because that wasn't on the slide. Yeah, of course I did. But you already knew the answers. (laughs) Okay, so olfactory. We're basically doing an overview of the anatomy of the areas where the special senses go to. Meaning we know where they come from. So cranial nerve 1 and 2 come from where? Four brain, also known as the diencephalon. And then 3 and 4 come from midbrain, mid-brain, mid-brain also known Mesostetyl. as mesencephalon. Five, six, seven, eight come from pons. And then 9, 10, 11, 12 come from so. the low, so. medulla. Medulla oblongata. Oh. yeah. So we know where they go to in the brain. But where do they come from? So they've got to take information from somewhere and then go to the brain so that the brain can integrate that information. So we're gonna be talking about all the areas where the information starts to come from. So we're gonna be talking all the areas like the receptors. Like so when we talked about pain, we talked about the receptors being, for example, in the hand or in the foot if you stubbed your toe. So now we're gonna be talking about for the olfactory, where does that sensation come from? It comes from the nose, right? So that's what we're gonna talk about is the anatomy of the nose. Okay, so when we look at the nose, do you guys remember in clinical anatomy number one, do you remember that these are called concha or turbinate bones? Okay, so either way it doesn't matter. I'm telling you, they're known as concha. We have a superior concha, middle concha, and an inferior concha, inferior nasal concha. Or you can call them turbinate bones. So, superior turbinate bone, middle turbinate bone, and inferior turbinate bone. And the whole point of these bones is that they stick out in the nasal cavity so that when you breathe in, it literally turbinates or creates a circular airflow so that you can moisten, because this is all lined, the nasal cavity is all lined by mucous membranes, which is kind of moist. So it's gonna moisten the area, or the air coming in, it's also going to warm it before it has to go down into the lungs. So these turbinate bones are really important because they don't allow the air just to flow directly down to the lungs, and if it's minus 40 out, damage the alveoli, right? It forces that air to come through and circulate in this area, to be able to warm, moisten, and also clean. That's why you get like stuff in your nose, right? Because the mucous membranes take all the debris and the gut. The filter. filter. So these turbinate bones and coca, all of this area, everything that's kind of like pinkish oranges right here, all covered by mucous membranes. The most important one for us is the superior turbinate bone or the superior coca, which is right here. So when you breathe in and you're through your nose. And if there is any stimulants, chemicals, olfactants is the word that they use that allow you to smell, you breathe them in. When you breathe them in, there's not a whole lot of receptors down here, but there's a ton of receptors. All of your dendrites, which are what receive information, all of your dendrites are right around this superior nasal concha. So, when you breathe in air and it circulates in here, those chemicals or those olfactants will actually attach to the little hairs that are found on the mucous membranes. When they attach and kind of stimulate those hairs, those hairs then stimulate a dendrite. Okay? So, these little kind of, mm, this might be a better, so you're going to have, you're going to breathe in. And it's going to circulate in here, so you're going to have this mucous membrane. This mucous membrane has a little bit of cilia right on it, a little bit of hairs. As soon as an olfactant or a chemical attaches to that hair, it'll stimulate that hair, which now stimulates these dendrites. When those dendrites get stimulated, what happens? What happens from a dendrite to a soma to an axon hillock? Action potential. Not yet, before uh, the action potential. Oh, a graded potential. Right, so right here, so you're going to breathe in, you're going to have and olfactants a chemical that's going to stimulate the, simu- the cilia, which is on the mucous membranes, so which stimulates the dendrites. Dendrites are then going to have a greater potential going to the soma, which then goes to the axon hillock. From the axon hillock, if it's stimulating enough, it'll cause the threshold to go to minus 55, which then causes an action potential. That action potential goes all along the axon. So this axon for that neuron is going to go through this bone. And if you remember, that bone is called the... Cri- well, It's called the cribriform plate. The whole bone's not called the cribriform plate, but this part of the bone is called the cribriform plate and it has olfactory holes in it. Do you remember that? No. Okay. So it does, and the reason, if it didn't, if this plate was just full bone, would you ever get sensations from your nose up to the brain? You never would. So in the cribriform plate here, it's important to know that we have holes, and the reason we have holes is so those axons can go through and then the axons are actually going to synapse in the olfactory bulb, okay? So that's your first order neuron. That's the first neuron. Once they synapse in the olfactory bulb, so all of these are gonna come up and synapse in the olfactory bulb. So you're gonna have a whole bunch of axons that are gonna synapse. They're then gonna, stimulate the second order neuron or the next neuron which is going to follow all the way towards the back towards the primary olfactory center in the temporal lobe which is going to fall cranial nerve number one. So the olfactory bulb is not really yet cranial nerve number one. It will bring the action potential to cranial nerve number one. Okay. So you smell, chemicals come in, olfactins come in, they stimulate the cilia which is on these mucous membranes which then stimulates the dendrites causes a greater potential to the so much the axon hillock a- action potential goes through the axon which goes through the cribriform plate synapses into the olfactory bulb a whole bunch of that happens in the olfactory bulb the olfactory bulb will then send the stimulus along cranial nerve number 1 back to the temporal lobe now okay so that's kind of the general basics now can you guys tell me the cribriform plate uh, what bone is that in Do you remember Right in front of the sphenoid. In front. Oh, is that the one that looks like a butterfly? butterfly. That's the sphenoid bone. So this bone is in front of the sphenoid. In front of the it has a sinus. It. Does that Sinoid help? Sinoid bone? No, <laughs> not <sphenoid laughs> bone. Like the frontal bone has a sinus, <laughs> the maxillary bone has a sinus, the sphenoid bone has a sinus, and the... Oh, so we said frontal, sorry. maxillary, sphenoid, all those have a sinus, and there's a fourth one that has a sinus. think of the transverse? Mm -hmm. Ethmoid bone, Uh okay. So the ethmoid bone is where you have your fourth sinus. So the cribriform plate right here is found in the ethmoid bone, okay? So it's important to know that in the ethmoid bone you have these olfactory gaps in the cribriform plate so that you can actually get sensation from the nose to the brain. So that is pretty important. Now, let me ask you something. When you come into a classroom and it's stinky, because yep. it happens, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how long do you smell that for? The, that's Not a bit. Bad. You are right, it does depend on how bad. But typically, like... Two minutes, you go nose blind. You do go nose blind. So this sensation, these receptors are actually quite um, highly adaptable, which means that if there's a chemical, let's call it chemical A. If chemical A here, the olfactory A, is stimulating this, after about a minute, 30 seconds to a minute, it will stop creating a graded potential at the dendrite because the dendrite's like, ah, I know you, been activated by you, I'm done with that. So it would need to take another smell. So the olfactory dendrites are actually really, really, really <laughs> adaptable, which is why you lose your sense of, you don't lose it, but you now become less sensitive to the sense of smell. Your threshold is going to change, okay? So that's important. Um, now, associated with smells, is there anything else that's associated with smell? When you smell something, taste, emotion, memories, and memories. taste, and memories, okay, yes. So, emotions come from where? The limbic system. Oh. The limbic system, right? Hippocampus Yes, is gonna be a part of it. Um, is there anything else? Could you have a reaction in the body? Like your uh, hormone? You migraines. So where do hormones come from? Uh, Hypothalamus is going to be your master gland and then the master gland will then control the pituitary gland. So with the olfactory bulb. So when it goes to the cranial nerve number one, I told you it goes to the primary factory center, but you of course know everything goes to the thalamus first and then the thalamus tells it where to go, which is going to the primary factory center. It can also go along cranial nerve number one and it can stop and hit the hypothalamus, which gives you a little bit of reaction, autonomic nervous system reaction possibly, a little bit of memories. It'll also go to the limbic system, which again gives you a little bit of memories. It also gives you your emotional content and then it can go to the thalamus and then to your primary olfactory center. So, along with smell, you may have a lot of pre existing memories. You may have some emotional content that comes with it. You may not, but you may. So, there is sometimes a stop at the limbic system and the hypothalamus before it gets to the primary olfactory so you center. Can you go back to and smell that well, what would happen is okay, so don't forget, nothing can happen until your primary center gets that information because that's, that's where your perception occurs. So if your thalamus, let's just say that it goes to the limbic system, it'll go back to the thalamus to then go to the primary factory center because the primary factory center has, has to say, okay, what, what is that? Like, what is that sensation? And then it'll go to the association cortex and say, okay, now let's integrate all the information we got from the limbic system and from the hypothalamus to now say, okay, let's create this whole thing with an emotion and a existing information and everything together. It's very cool, but there's lots of stuff going on. And smell, because it's so closely, it actually tracks right along the limbic system. It's so closely attached to the limbic system. It's one of your strongest senses that has a reaction of emotion. It's not quite as strong with vision. Actually, there's almost none with vision, and there's almost none with auditory. There's a little bit with taste, but the big, big, big emotional um, contribution of the limbic system with a special sense is gonna be olfactory, so that's really important to know. Okay, so here again we have these odorants or these olfactants, these chemicals that are going to go into the mucous membranes. So they're going to attach or stimulate these cilia, cause a graded potential until it gets to the axon hillock, which is then going to cause an action potential which goes through the cribriform plate of the ethmoid bone, synapse of the olfactory bulb, and then the olfactory bulb is going to have a second-order neuron, which is then going to follow the cranial nerve number one and whether it goes to the Thalamus, the primary refractory center, to the limbic system, to the hypothalamus. That's going to be the process. I don't need you guys to know this, but the only reason I put it up here is because this is accurate. I made it seem very like the chemical stimulates dendrites, and then that's what happens, and then you get the graded potential. It's not quite that basic. Just like most things, there's a um, Yeah, there's a word for that, a cascade effect. So there is a cascade effect here. When the receptor gets stimulated, there's a whole bunch of things that happen that involve ATP to be used to be able to create all these things that happen to actually cause the greater potential. So your voltage-gated channels to open to allow sodium to enter tell how that gated the uh, graded potential. So I don't really care if you know this, because I mean, really, that's, that, that, this has no relevancy, in my opinion, to you as a massage therapist. But knowing that if you get punched at the bridge of the nose, for example, and you fracture your ethmoid bone, could that create a nosemia, which means no sense of smell? Yeah. If you were in a car accident and you blast your head off of the dash, for example, could that damage or even move the cribriform plate, which could then damage your ability to smell? Yes. Right. Frontal, a prefrontal lobe damages, so when people have a lot of um, like bipolar issues, but now there's a tumor, let's say, in that area. Could that push down on the ethmoid bone and affect the nose? So it's important to know the anatomy of it because there are things that are going to affect a nosemia. A nosemia means you can't smell. So if you can't smell, if someone comes in and you say, have you noticed a change in your smell in the last two or three months? And they say yes, right away you think what? Okay, I have to assess cranial nerve number one, which comes from the diencephalon, so I really need to also look at cranial nerve number two to rule in or out the diencephalon. Once I've ruled in or out the diencephalon, I have to figure out, has there been any trauma? So could it be the cribriform plate? Or is it that there's been damage to the nose itself? Or is it the primary olfactory center that can't even perceive the information? Because if the olfactory center in the temporal lobe is saying, I don't know, you're sending me stuff, but I'm damaged, so I can't read it, you're not going to have a sense of smell. So now that you know that, you can start to deduct what you're going to do for your testing or questions that you're going to ask so that you can rule in where the problem would be and then you can refer to the appropriate person. Would it also affect your emotional state? If you it had bad. no smell? Yeah. Your limbic system is still going to work. It's just not going to have informa- incoming information from the nose. Yeah. But you'll still have your emotions because your limbic system is still going to be up, like, up and running. Yeah. Uh, unless you unless you did have an upper motor neuron lesion that did cause demyelination of multiple parts of the cerebrum, then possibly, yeah. Okay, so we did talk about adaptation, so that's really really important. So there are ten thousand different chemicals or, or factants um, that the nose can actually detect. Ten thousand. I know that's a ton. In taste, is only five. So the nose actually is is quite um, descriptive with its information. Okay, so we talked about this, that the limbic system and the hypothalamus is definitely going to have contributions into your sense of smell, which is why you get your emotional reaction where you may have an autonomic nervous system reaction as well. And then your primary olfactory center is always your perception. I am now sensing smell doesn't put anything to it, doesn't put the emotion to it, doesn't put the autonomic nervous system, doesn't put pre-existing information about, you've smelt this before. That's the association cortex, right? Your primaries are just perception. Association cortex give you all the extra information, okay? All right, Um, so we're gonna have that in the temporal lobe, which is gonna be right here, which we already knew, because we've done that before. Okay, sense of, oh, we just did this. Well, this is just another picture taste okay so you guys told me if this is the tongue that this part of the tongue this part of the tongue and the back of the throat so what innervated or what cranial nerve had receptors in the anterior two-thirds of the tongue Ten. Seven. no, seven uh-huh. and what The cranial nerve had receptors in the posterior one-third of the tongue. And then what did the oropharynx or the back of the throat? That's 10. Okay. So when you look at the tongue, it looks like you have little holes everywhere. So if you were to actually stick out your tongue and look at your tongue, it looks like there's little holes everywhere. In fact, those holes, we're going to call them papilla, are actually elevations. So if you looked at it really, really closely, like you put a magnifying glass in someone's tongue, you'll actually see they're like really small elevations. Each of those elevations in the tongue has a gustatory receptor, which means it has a taste receptor. So in here, I really don't care if you know where specific tastes are felt in different parts of the tongue. That's not really all that important. Because if you wanted to test career nerve number seven, you could just put salt in the anterior two-thirds of the tongue, or you could put sugar in the anterior two-thirds of the tongue, or you could put coffee for caffeine in the anterior two-thirds of the tongue. So I don't really care if you know exactly where the taste is in the tongue, it's not relevant. What's relevant is, do you taste or do you not taste? Right? I'm not asking, is this part of the tongue not working? Or this part of the tongue not working? Because that's not our job. Our job is to figure out, is this a brain issue? Is this a local issue? Is this a cranial nerve issue? And then who do I refer out to, right? So this, not pertinent. So when we have these papilla, these papilla, what happens? So when you put something in your mouth, your saliva starts to dissolve, right? So if you remember the parotid gland, the sublingual gland and submandibular glands release salivary amylase, so they're gonna start to break down carbohydrates in the mouth. Your um, lingual glands will also release some um, salivary lipase but if you recall from physiology it actually doesn't get activated until it gets to the stomach because it needs the acid so you start to dissolve carbohydrates in the tongue but these papilla are actually pretty um, sensitive to whatever you put on your tongue meaning if you put salt on your tongue then you're gonna have very specific receptors get stimulated If you were to put caffeine on your tongue or citrus foods on your tongue, they're going to be very specific. And there's five different receptors. They literally can only get activated by that structure. Meaning, if you eat citrus food, it's the hydrogen ions that stimulate that receptor. So if you now put glucose, you eat a piece of fruit and you put glucose on that receptor, it does nothing. So there's five specific receptors. Okay, so that's really important. So it's like a neurotransmitter. The receptor only accepts a very specific neurotransmitter. It's the same thing with these receptors. They only accept a very specific taste. Okay, so all throughout the tongue, we've got these papilla, and that's where you have your taste buds. So what's going to happen is the the whole mouth and tongue is surrounded again by mucous membranes, right? That's why it's pinkish. So... And if you recall, if you looked up someone's nose or you looked in someone's mouth, if the mucous membrane goes blue, what is that a good sign of? Uh-oh. Hypoxia. Yeah, but what what system is affected? Like, is that a big deal? Sure. It's called central cyanosis. Central cyanosis is a huge red flag for a major cardiovascular issue, right? Okay. Like, if your fingers and your toes go blue, yeah. are you severely worried? Like, is that a red flag? I'd be worried, yes. no. It's not as worrisome. No. Well, it's peripheral. It's the furthest place from your heart. Yeah. Okay. So, okay, yeah, I refer out, sure, but it's not something I'm worried about, like, no. imminently. No. But when your mucous membranes and your lips go blue, that is something imminent. That's a red flag. That's central cyanosis. That's telling you your heart is in failure. So that's a big deal. So, anyways, long story short, these mucous membranes here, they're going to line the whole oral cavity, including the tongue. So when your saliva is kind of breaking down the food, and now all of a sudden you get these chemicals. They're still chemicals. They're tastings. They get these chemicals that attach these mucous membranes. There's little hair. You can't see them, okay, but they call them hairs. They're cilia. There's little cilia that come out on the tip of these gaps, these papilla, and they're going to be stimulated by these chemicals. So the exact same thing as the nose. There's no different. So on these gaps of this mucous membrane where you have your papilla, that's where the taste buds are going to go. That's where your chemicals are going to go. They're going to stimulate those hairs. Those hairs are going to stimulate the dendrites and then the dendrites are going to cause a greater potential through the body and it's going to cause an action potential going down. If it's in the anterior two-thirds of the tongue, it's going to go along cranial number seven. If in the, the posterior one third of the tongue, it's gonna go along cranial nerve number nine. If it's in the back of the throat, it's gonna go along cranial nerve number 10. Okay, so that's kind of how that process happens. All right, so there's only five primary tastes. Okay, so we should remember this probably for Monday and maybe probably for the final two about these five tastes. So anything that's gonna be sour, it tastes sour because of hydrogen ions. So anything citrusy, is because your hydrogen ions are being released. So that's one of your taste buds, it's gonna be very specific to sour things. Then you're gonna have sweet things. Anything that's like glucose, maltose, sucrose, anything that's got a carbohydrate um, base is going to stimulate the receptor that is for sweetness. Bitterness. Okay, so anything that's caffeine, morphine or quinine. Quinine is actually a birch bark um, and It was actually originally um, figured out because that's how they were treating malaria. But um, it is found in some foods and it is very, very, very bitter. So it would stimulate the bitter sensation. So anything that's salty would be from ions, sodium ions. So anything that's got sodium ions in it would stimulate your salty receptors. Umami is basically your meat taste. So anything that has an amino acid type base would stimulate your umami receptors. So these five primary tastes are essentially your five receptors. And then if you had a taste that wasn't exactly one of these five, it just means that a couple of these are being stimulated at the same time. Okay? It's like your primary colors can create other colors, right? Same thing, your five primary basic receptors can now actually create, if two or three of them are stimulated, it can actually give you a different sense. So wait i wanted to say something but oh there it is okay never mind it's coming up i wanted to say something but we'll wait okay so why is it that when you drink a really hot coffee or a really hot tea or um and you burn your or soup and you burn your tongue what happens it goes numb numb for how long how long depends Depends on how bad, hot it is. Okay. So you're saying a couple of days, some people are saying a couple of hours. Maybe if it's really bad, it might be like up to a week. Really? Yeah. If it's yeah. really bad? I, never I never know. Thought I thought it. Man. <laughs> really bad? So these receptors, the reason why you don't, when you burn your tongue, you don't t- totally lose your taste for the rest of your life is because these receptors, they uh, replenish themselves every 10 days. So if you were to burn yourself, don't worry. In 10 days, you're gonna have new receptors. So you'll be fine. So you'll still taste. It's all good. Once in a while. Just so in a while, you'll feel a, well, I'll feel a really sharp snap in my mouth, and on my tongue, like something like burst, and then you get like a canker. Hey, yeah, well, what are you Like spontaneity. <laughs> <laughs> you get a canker on your tongue? Yeah. yeah. Before that happens, you feel it almost burst. But does that happen like after eating like really sweet or nope. salty things? No, I used to have a hmm. lot. That could be an immune system thing. But it no longer happens, so I'm good with that. Um. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Um, hmm. interesting. Okay. So everything that we've already talked about is already here, right? So you've got your mucous membranes, you've got these little cilia, the tastants come into the papilla, stimulate the simula get the greater potential, and then it's gonna cause an action potential along cranial or either three, seven, nine, or 10. So we're happy with that. Yeah? just question about uh, the stuff. Is that, is it the same reason um, with smokers, they lose their sense of taste, is it the same reason that, um, or is it the you getting paralyzed like they do the rest of the airway? So carbons, there's a lot of carbons in cigarettes, which will actually kind of like I'm going to say bung up or block, not just the cilia itself from the ability to move, but also taste buds, like the papilla itself. It can actually, rather than having a papilla, this is a bit exaggerated, they're never this big, but rather than having a papilla like this, the carbon fibers can now start to create a narrowing of that papilla. So not only are the cilia going to be possibly a problem, but that actually opening could also be a problem. So now what is your ability to be able to get tastings into the cilia to be able to stimulate the dendrite? It would be reduced. yeah, there's, there's, there's actually a lot of bad stuff in cigarettes so it would have multiple different effects, but thanks. Okay, so again you do not need to know this, I'm really not concerned about this, but you need to know about the papilla. We already talked about cranial 7, 9, and 10 which is how information is going to get to the brain. So, let's go through this quickly. The bolus is in my mouth, saliva is breaking it down. Tastants are gonna stimulate a papilla in the anterior two-thirds of the tongue. For the anterior two-thirds of the tongue, it's gonna stimulate the cilia, which is gonna stimulate my dendrites, which is gonna cause greater potential, and then an action potential, the action potential is gonna go along during nerve number seven, and it's gonna go to the medulla, which there's a gustatory center in the medulla. So then after the medulla, then it'll go to the thalamus, which will then go to the primary gustatory center, which is going to be in the temporal lobe, okay? So there will be a stop in the medulla because that's, if you remember, the medulla had really important centers, like it had a cardiac center, it has a respiratory center, it had a vomiting center, it had a hiccuping center, it also has a gustatory center. So all of these stop at the medulla first, then go to the thalamus, then go to the primary gustatory center. Okay? So posterior one third of the tongue. Same thing. Chemicals or tastants are on the papilla. Stimulate the cilia, the hairs. Stimulate the dendrites. Causes a greater potential through the cranial nerve number seven. or Sorry, cranial nerve number nine. And it's going to go to the medulla, go to the thalamus, and then go to the primary gustatory center. The exact same thing for the back of the throat. Right? papilla gets stimulated or the cilia and the papilla get stimulated by the chemicals or the Tints, which are then going to cause a graded potential and action potential along cranial number, number 10, stops at the medulla, goes to the thalamus, and then goes to the primary gustatory center. So, your primary gustatory center is your perception. It's going to say, is this salty? Is this sweet? Is this umami? Is this bitter? So, that's where your perception of taste is going to occur. You had a question. Okay. <laughs> I saw this and I kind of ignored you for a second because I just wanted to finish my line. <laughs> but yeah. Seven is, ponds, is it? Seven, seven is ponds. Yes, the seven will eventually end up in ponds. That's where creative number seven will end will actually that's where it ends up at the very end where its innervation is. But on its trail there, it stops at all these places. So it first goes to meetup. Yes. Yes. Because there's a goostery Center there, yeah. So you said uh, for a sense of smell, you get uh, there's a threshold and adaptation. Is yes. It the same thing. Not as much. These okay. So, um, your smell is really, really, really sensitive. So it doesn't take much for your smell to get stimulated. Like even if you had like two or three. Chemicals in the nose, you would probably create uh, stimulation, a greater potential. And then literally, I mean, it would stop happening because you've already had that smell. The taste is fairly specific in that, but it does not adapt as quickly as the nose. Nothing nothing in the whole body adapts as quickly as the nose. It is the quickest adapting sense we have. Yeah? Do the nose receptors regenerate as well? They do, uh, but I think it's every 30 days. It's not as quick as it is with the tongue. So if you get nosebleeds like every season, would that cause a problem? So if the nosebleeds are just literally superficial where it's just the veins and the arteries in the mucous membranes that are collapsing, you probably would be okay, right? Because the mucous membranes are actually really quick at regenerating. Mm -hmm. Um, But if it was going to be a little bit more of a deeper bleed. I know people get it cauterized, but... Yeah, and again, they're just cauterizing the mucous membranes, which for that short amount of time until they regenerate, that scar tissue in that area. So that area, you will lose a little bit of your ability to smell. But again, it's temporary, because in 30 days, they're gonna regenerate themselves anyways. Um, But if it was going to be something like a vascular bleed that was from a really deep, I would say that that would be much more significant because now that could affect the whole n- neuron, like the whole, which would now affect the possible transmission. But if it's just at that superficial layer, probably not significant. It would be very short term, right? Okay, so goose pathways, we talked about this. So it's gonna go three, seven, or three, seven, nine, oh, three, seven. Seven, nine, and 10 goes to the medulla, which is the um, olfactory center in the brain stem, then it's gonna go to the thalamus, and it's gonna go to the primary olfactory center. Or primary gustatory center so when you taste something if you were to block your nose what happens it yeah you don't taste as much so there is a connection an association fiber connection between your olfactory center and your gustatory center because they do communicate smell will actually enhance your sense of taste because your brain says i taste it ooh, and i smell it and so now it's a big deal okay so it enhances it so if you were to get rid of your sense of smell altogether your some of your taste can still have a little bit of a stop off at the limbic and the hypothalamus because sometimes when you taste things do you have a little bit of an emotional reaction yes who feels good eating sugar Yes. Yeah. right if you, were to take, if you were to take the nose out of it, your emotional reaction would be less because your strongest sense affecting the limbic system is the olfactory center. You will still have a little bit of an emotional reaction, but if you now open up that ability for the olfactory nerve to cross and get information to the olfactory center, your emotional content is much bigger when you eat. So yes, there can be a stop off at the limbic system and at the hypothalamus with the gustatory center, but that's also because it's highly, highly interactive with the olfactory center. Okay, so we should know about that. Um, So the primary gustatory center. Do you remember where the insula is? Yes. Yeah, deep. Yeah, deep where? In the brain. Yeah, where? Part of the brain. Yeah, like here. So between what three lobes? Frontal, parietal, frontal, parietal temporal. and temporal, yeah. So you have to, like, squeeze them all open and go really deep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so in the picture here, okay, it'll look like it's in the parietal lobe. It's not in the parietal lobe. It's, like, okay, in this okay. fissure, right? Okay. Um, so question, which I wanted to ask before, is your your tastes. Why is it that you're likely to spit out something that's bitter? Poison, like rotten, Because. Easy. Most things that are poisonous have a bitter taste. Usually, excuse me, things Mm -hmm. that are poisonous are not sweet. Mm -hmm. They don't taste like meat. So the body has kind of adapted and learned over thousands of generations. It's kind of learned innately that when something's bitter, spit it out unless you know what it is. Because if you don't know what it is chances are it could be poisonous so it's actually a protective reflex mechanism that bitter when you put something bitter on your tongue it's actually got a really low threshold which means you only need a couple of chemicals to be able to stimulate that bitter sense so the receptor for the bitter taste like it only needs to go let's say at minus 68 for example Like right? the threshold will be really low so it barely needs a greater potential and then your body can then say, oh, I've never tasted this before, I've never felt this before, get it out, because it's no good. So that's why, it's a protective mechanism because most things that are, not most things, a lot of things that are bitter are poisonous. Okay, so the anatomy of the eye. So this one's a little more in-depth and difficult. This is probably, I think, the most difficult sense. So we need to know about the three layers of the eyes. So the outside layer of the eye is this white thing right here. So this outside layer, this external layer, is going to be continuous all around like this. Okay. So the outside layer of the eye we're going to call the sclera. So this white part is the sclera. So when you look at someone's eye and you see white, that's sclera. Okay. So that's the outside layer of the eyeball. The sclera covers the posterior 2 thirds of the eyeball. The very front of the sclera is called the cornea. So if I were to ask you what structures are in the external layer of the eyeball, you would say the sclera and the cornea. Now the cornea is see-through, right? Because when you're looking at someone's eye, you can see the colored parts and you can see the black pupil. So you can see the iris, which is colored, and you can see the black pupil. The reason you can see that is because the cornea covers these and it's see-through, it's transparent, okay? So the outside layer of the eye is the sclera, which is going to be continuous with the cornea and then again with the sclera, and it's going to go all the way around the eyeball. The middle layer of the eye is this pink layer right here, and it's known as the choroid. It's pink because it has all your vasculature, so all your blood vessels basically, okay? So it's highly, which is why you see these little like pink dots, right? So it's highly vascularized. So this. Choroid is again going to cover the posterior two-thirds of the eyeball. When it comes forward, so right about the same layer that the sclera transitions to the cornea, the choroid is going to transition to this muscle right here known as the ciliary muscle. That ciliary muscle is really important for us. The ciliary muscle, as you can see right here, is going to attach to the lens. So, when these ciliary muscles contract, they flatten out the lens, which means it allows you to see very far. Is that a combination? That's gonna be part of a combination. And that's a very good question because I was just about to ask that question. I was gonna ask you about the two things that happen and what created nerve, but we'll get there in a sec, I will still ask it. So this cilia, when these ciliary muscles contract, as you can see, they're gonna, if they contract, they do this. If they do this, what happens to the lens? It gets skinnier. Everybody agree with that? They get skinnier if it loses its convexity. That's to help you see far. If these relax, now the lens becomes more convex, more bulbous-like, which allows you to see a little bit closer. Okay, so this ciliary muscle is really important. If you lose the function of the ciliary muscle, you lose your ability to be able to change looking at very far things to very close things. The older we get, the more we lose this. The older we get, we go downhill, we lose muscle, period. It just happens. So, are these skeletal muscle or are these smooth muscle? They're smooth muscle. So it's involuntary, which means it's controlled by the autonomic nervous system. So, what cranial nerve would control this? Right, cranial nerve number three. What cranial nerves have autonomic component? Three, seven, nine, ten. Ocular motor and its accommodation, when we looked at accommodation, we were watching. Can you see the lens changing? Can you look at someone and say, oh yeah, your lens changing. No, you can't see it. So when we test for accommodation, you're looking at the pupil changing, right? So there's two things that really happen with accommodation. We can only look for one of them. That's the problem. But there are two things. Your lens is going to change. We just can't see that. And then number two, your pupil is going to dilate or constrict which both of those are autonomic, and both of those are cranial nerve number three through o- ocular motor. Okay, so that's really important. So we definitely need to know that the choroid, which is the middle layer or the intermediate layer of the eyeball, is going to cover the posterior two-thirds of the eye, and then when it comes anterior, it now is called the ciliary muscle, which is involuntary, controlled by the autonomic components of cranial nerve number three, which then will change the lens, which allows you to see far or away. So we are good with that. The very inside layer of the eyeball, the retina. As you can see, the retina only does the posterior two-thirds of the eyeball. There's nothing for the retina in the front. So the retina has no component forward. So literally, this yellow part, that's the retina. The retina is the functional part of the eyeball. Without the retina, you can't see. Because your photoreceptors, which are your receptors to be able to see, are in the retina. So if you don't have a retina, you don't have photoreceptors. If you don't have photoreceptors, that means you don't have dendrites, you can't create an action potential, you can't get information to your primary visual cortex. So the retina is really important. Okay, so it only lines the posterior two-thirds of the eyeball. And when the retina comes, we're going to talk about the optic disc, which is actually um, where you don't have any sight in the retina. There's only one part that you don't have sight, but in that one part, this is where your cranial nerve tube is gonna exit. It's called the optic disc. So we're gonna, we'll talk about that in just a minute. Okay. Give me a sec, cause I need to draw this, cause we'll talk about how light hits. Um, so. Thank you. I think this might be the best one. Oh, though. what am I, what <laughs> I doing? Wait, wait, wait. you know what it looks like when we're You to see the dark. You're going to show what's in the clouds. about light light does not enter the eye directly straight so when someone takes the picture with the camera light does go in your eye like so the pupil so the iris is the colored part and then the black around the iris or the black inside the iris is your pupil that's basically just a hole that goes to the back of the eyeball that goes to the retina Okay, that's all your pupil is and it's it's black because it's going to actually go directly back to your optic disc, which is kind of like your dead zone where you actually don't see. So typically when we're looking at things, light does not go in on an on a straight. It always goes in on an angle. So when we talk about our temporal visual fields, it always comes in on an angle. And when we talk about our nasal visual fields, light always goes in on an angle. Okay? So... Light will refract, meaning if it goes through something really opaque, it'll change its angle. If it goes through something really thin, like the cornea for example, which is very transparent, it'll just go in on an angle. Okay, so this is really important that we do know this. That has nothing to do with the lens. Mm-hmm. It's um, so the lens will slightly change the refractory of light. Um, and I'm going to say it does make a little bit of a difference because if you have astigmatism, it now means that your shape of your lens is different than it's supposed to be. So, if your lens is supposed to be convex like this, your lens is actually a different shape. Which now means that rather than your light coming through, your light may refract a little bit. Which now means you may see things not perfectly. It's like the lights It's like? It looks kind of like a star the lights at night, like the private. It goes like this. Okay. Like the headlights outside. Yeah. I don't know. They just blind me. So okay. (laughs) (laughs) But if you change your lens, it will change how light refracts, the angle in which it comes in. And if it does angle it, the more it angle it, the more it changes it. The less photoreceptors you're going to have to be able to provide that clear information, which now means astigmatism. What just means what? It means that things are a little bit blurry. It's a little bit off, right? Okay. So. Now that we know kind of how light is going to come in through the eye, it comes in, it it refracts, it comes in on the angle. We have to talk about what we can see. So we only see wavelengths that are 400 to 700 nanometers. So that's the wavelengths of a light. Anything that's outside of that, we can't see. So anything that's not within these colors, we typically cannot see. Okay? Now, what we're actually seeing If I were to be looking at a green apple, for example, okay, a green apple I see as green because the green light, the the wavelength that's green, actually is being reflected back into my eye. So it is the only wavelength the apple's not absorbing. Okay, so you can see that something is red because the red is hitting that object and it's bouncing back to your eyes, and that's what you're seeing. You're seeing the red. Uh, Light trips. Okay? Yeah. So that's actually how it works. You are seeing the wavelength that is actually being rebounded off of the object. <laughs> All the colors except the blue. So it's everything but blue? Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, here's an example this. But it's only because of all the light is hitting it. All the light is being absorbed. But everything's alive. This is actually every color button. Yes. But you're seeing the blue because the blue is going back into your eyes. And it's it's like usually when you're like, colors. everything's about blue, and I'm like. Yeah. So. <laughs> so- it's not. It's not that this isn't blue. It is blue. It's just that all the lights, are, everything is being absorbed. All of the nanometers are being absorbed in here, except the blue one. It's going boom. Okay. Yeah. I would so say it, it's not being absorbed into this. It's going. It's coming in. It's going boom. But everything else is being absorbed, so you don't get to see it because need it needs to bounce off to, for you to be able to see it. So that's weird. If things are black. That means, like that black tabletop, it means that it's black because nothing is bouncing back to me. There's no color. So all the colors, all the wavelengths are being absorbed by that, so I see black. Because there's nothing bouncing back to me. Whereas if something was white, like that binder's got a white sheet on it. Actually, look at your clothes. <laughs> <laughs> You're perfect example of that. <laughs> They're all being absorbed, none of them are being absorbed. So with white stuff, all of the colors are bouncing off, and you're absorbing all the colors, so you see a lot of brightness. You see white essentially what you see when all the colors get absorbed. So when all the colors are going to be absorbed, you're going to end up seeing white. Okay? Okay, so just have an idea about what you see is what is the light that's actually being bounced off of that object. That's, that's all I really need you guys to have an idea about because what is bouncing off of the object is what's gonna stimulate. So we have, we're gonna talk about cones and rods. So our photoreceptors, which are our receptors in the eyeball, in the retina, they're either gonna see gray, black, or white, or they're gonna see colors. So if they see colors, for example, like I see something red, the reason I see something red is because the red's bouncing off that object and it's hitting my red cone. So we have all different We do have different receptors. I'm just gonna say know your cones and know your rods, but you're right, within cones, you have have all, you have basically your primary colors. But as long as we know rods and cones, because that's really important. Okay, so they talk about half of the body's receptors are in the eye. That's crazy. I think that's crazy. I think that's amazing. Half of the body's receptors Receptors are are just in your eye. Isn't that, I think that's insane. Okay, so this is a review, cranial nerve number three, okay, what? I, before I tell you, what, what cranial nerves move the eye? Two, two four, six. Three, four, no, six. Three, six four. Four, three. Yeah, three, four, and six. Three, four, three, six. and six. Yeah. Okay, so that's what this is telling you right here. Lateral rectus is innervated by cranial nerve number six. Superior oblique is innervated by cranial nerve number four. All the rest are innervated by three, cranial nerve number three, that's what that means. So if you remember, lateral rectus is done by cranial nerve number six, which is known as abducens. So when you do this, the right eye abducts. That's cranial nerve number six. The left eye, a deducted, and that was what cranial nerve? No. Ocular motor. So basically, all of your recti's are ocular motor except for lateral rectus. Your medial rectus, your superior rectus, your inferior rectus, it's all cranial nerve number three. And then as well as your inferior oblique. So those four, cranial nerve, cranial nerve three, superior oblique is cranial nerve number four, and then lateral rectus cranial nerve number six. So that's just all that's saying right there. So that was just a review. Okay. All right, so this is everything we talked about with the layers. Have an idea about these layers. The functional layer of the eye is your retina. So, where we have photoreceptors is in the retina. Um, so, does the ciliary bodies always <laughs> contract or relax with each individual person? Hmm? Yes. Okay. Well, what do you mean? Because it's involuntary. So, I was wondering maybe if the lens stigma would be based on the fact that the ciliary body if contracted or Okay, that your autonomic nervous system will always control that muscle, and now I see where your question is going. Yeah. <laughs> but when you're born, your lens could be shaped differently. Yes. It you can does. also acquire that throughout your time in life that your lens can change. So that's but where astigmatism do with the ciliary body. Um, no. As long as you can accommodate, <coughs> as long as your lens can change, your ciliary body is active. Okay. But as we get older. Um, all muscles become a little bit weakened. So even though we've got the hormonal reaction from the hypothalamus and our cranial nerve number three telling ciliary body to contract, as we get older, it does start to degrade a little bit, right? We usually go downhill in our 30s and then just keep going down. I know. Oh, I'm way past that. Trust me, I'm way, past, I'm way on the decline. Okay, so when we talked about accommodation, we talked about the lens changing, which is controlled by the ciliary muscle, which is the autonomic nervous system. We also said that our, pupillary, our pupils can either dilate or constrict, right? And that's one of the things we're looking for in accommodation when we do the test of the H pattern, right? So we're testing the autonomic component of cranial nerve number three. Okay, so we do need to know about these. So we're going to have pupillary constrictor muscles. These are basically circular muscles. When a circular muscle contracts, it does this, right? It's going to close. It's like all your sphincter muscles are circular. So what system would control constricting the pupils? Uh, sympathetic. Oh, what system? oh autonomic. Uh, in autonomic, which one? Is it parasympathetic it's or sympathetic? sympathetic. Parasympathetic. It's parasympathetic. It's parasympathetic. During rest and digest, do I need to see what I'm doing? Yeah. Who cares? I'm chillin'. Right? I don't care what's in my sight. But now, when I talk about my dilator muscles... (laughs) I was hoping you didn't see that. But when my pupils dilate, now I get way more light coming in. Which now means I can see everything. So I'm not gonna trip so that the ax murderer can get me, right? But when I'm on the beach drinking margarita, I don't care. There's sand, there's ocean, whatever. Who cares? Right? So why do you need to see what's around you? So we should have an idea of what system is being activated. When your pupils constrict, constrict, it is going to be parasympathetics. You're in a relaxed mode. You don't need to have a lot of light coming in. But when you're in sympathetics, you need to see what's in your visual sight, so you need to have a lot of light coming in so your pupils will dilate, so that's important. Okay, talking about the color of your iris. So the iris is the colored part of your eyeball. So, if you have a lot of melanin i don't know where i was i was saying melatonin on monday because apparently i needed to sleep but anyways so if you have a lot of melanin like the same thing that you have in your skin melanin gives you vitamin d co- it's gonna it's gonna help integrate vitamin d but it gives you your pigment right it gives you your color so if you have a lot of melanin what color do you think things are going to be darker or lighter Darker. So you're going to end up with like brown eyes. People might say black eyes. Yeah. No, they're not really black. They're just really, really, really dark. So, what happens if you have a little bit or a moderate amount of melanin? What color do you think your iris is going to be? Blue. Hazel. Green. So, hazel, you would kind of be between this area. <clears throat> and then, if you only have a little bit of melanin, what color do you should think your eyes are going to be? Blue. Blue. So any combination of this will just change the amount of melanin. Okay. So gray would kind of be between your green and your blue. So it wouldn't be super super light. You'd have a little bit more melanin than that, but it would it would darken it a little bit. Um, then you would have no melanin, right? Same thing with um, I'll. I'll albino people like if whether their hair or their skin yeah there's no melanin. What's that? Um they can be a little bit pink and the only reason why you would see pink is because the amount of blood supply in the retina. Oh that that would be the reflection of of the the redness from the blood supply. But there is there is actually no melanin if they are true albinos, there's actually no melanin. Okay. So we talked a little bit about how the light is going to come through and it always comes through on an angle. The thicker the substance, the more angulation it's going to have, right? Um, The cornea is pretty thin and it's transparent, so there's not going to be a lot of angulation, but there is a refractory period to the lens. So, we do need to know about seeing things at a far distance versus seeing things very up close, very up close. So 20 feet is kind of what we consider to be within normal limits. You know when you do ranges of motion, you say, yep, that's normal. That's kind of your within normal limits. Your within normal limits for vision is about your 20 feet. So that's when your lens is considered to be in a relaxed state. So we call that emetropic. Hint, hint. We call that emetropic. So that's kind of your... With nothing happening, your ciliary body is not contracting at all. That is the normal shape of your lens without any having to change it at all. So if you want to see things close, your ciliary muscles are super going to relax and really let this convexity increase or the lens is going to get really, really fat, really bulbous, okay? So when you do this, your lens is going really becoming thick and convex when you do this your ciliary bodies are contracting and they're now starting to pull on that lens and they're starting to flatten it so when you look at things really 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 far your lens is actually really really flat because your ciliary bodies are really contracting when you look at something really really close everything's super relaxed and your lens is really really bunched up and it's very convex okay so we should have an idea about that Okay, do you guys know what an otoscope and an ophthalmoscope is? You do, you just didn't know that's what it was called. So you know when you go to the doctors and they put this thing that they hold that looks like a cone and they put it in your ear? (laughs) Okay? That's an otoscope. All it is is a light. It's just a light, a cone-shaped light so that fits in the ear canal and it basically can show you the uh, tympanic membrane, which we're going to talk about today. So then you can see if it's bulging, you can see if it's white, you can see if it's fibrotic, you get to basically be able to see if there's stuff going on in the middle ear and the external ear. An ophthalmoscope is the exact same thing, but it's for the eye. So it's not quite as cone-like, because it doesn't go in your eye, but when you go see um, an optometrist, they put this thing that they hold, it looks like a tube and then has a little bit of a, a top roundish part and has light to it, and they go right into your eye. Okay. The reason they're doing that, this is what they're looking for. That's the picture of a normal eye looking through an ophthalmoscope. So they would be looking on this end, and the light would be going right through your pupil. Because if you remember, your pupil is just just a void space, right? Because light's going through there. So they're going to be looking through this kind of like magnifying glass and looking through the light that goes right through the pupil. And they're looking to see, do you have a dead zone or a blind spot, which would be right here, known as the optic disc? If you do, that's a really good sign because it means you have cranial nerve number two, which means you can see. So that's really important. There are no photoreceptors in the optic disc. Literally, this is where all your nerves come together to exit the eyeball. Okay, so that is the non-functioning part of the retina. We call it this dead zone. There's no photoreceptors. It's literally just where your nerves, cranial nerve number two, and the blood vessels are leaving the eyeball from the back of the eye. Now, this part right here, the kind of like the darkest, um, most concentrated part right here, the macula lutea, this is where all your photoreceptors are. So when light comes in, it comes in on an angle. So let's say from your temporal visual field on an angle, and it hits the macula lutea. Or it'll come from the retinal visual field, comes on an angle, and hits your macula lutea. Okay, because we said that light's going to refract on an angle through the pupil, okay? So we need to know that most of our photoreceptors are concentrated in the maculatia. Now the very center of the maculatia is called the phobia centralis. Center, right? That is the highest concentration of cones. And we're going to learn cones search with a C, so it's for color. Okay, so that's your highest concentration of cones. <clears throat> Um, if yours, if you have like if you require glasses because you can't see like a bar or Was your nerve
1: on, like the, would that be smaller? Nope, longer?
0: nope that but has everything present, to do with your legs it would be still present yeah, whether or not that nerve exits is whether or not you can see, period, so if you did this, can you see then your cranial nerve 2 is exiting and it's going to the occipital lobe. But if you do this and you see nothing, cranial nerve number two is not working, which means there's no information going to get to the typical, which means you can't perceive anything. So we're gonna, we are gonna talk about those damages in life. But the thing I wanted to mention about this, um, this is pretty much the only place in the whole entire body where we can see blood vessels clearly. Could you, like, you can feel the urethra, but you can't see it. You can see your veins, but do you see arteries? No. If you got an ophthalmoscope and you looked in someone's eye, you would literally be able to see their arteries. So, going to see an optometrist could actually be the first stage of being diagnosed with diabetes, for example, or being diagnosed with hypertension or hypercholesterolemia because you can actually see it is the only place in the body that you can actually see the blood vessels without having to go in and do any kind of like ultrasound, MRI, CT scan, that kind of stuff. You literally just have to put a light in. Would they send you to the doctor to be diagnosed? So I actually don't know exactly what the scope of practice of an optometrist is. Uh, I know they're allowed to diagnose. I don't know if they're allowed to diagnose all conditions but they so do they have a right to diagnose. Not tell you. Well, it would be like the dentist, because the tongue is, um, the mucous membranes is highly indicative of cancer. Right. So the dentists are allowed to diagnose. I don't know within their scope of practice if they're allowed to actually diagnose that. I don't know. But, I should. yeah, I, well, and I was gonna say, I, I, I really, I don't know what their scope of practice is, but my, Usually when you have a right to diagnose, you have a right to diagnose, period. So it's usually not you can diagnose these things and not these things. However, Mm -hmm. some people may not be comfortable diagnosing things that are outside of what their specialty is. So they may want to refer out. Um, Yeah, so I'm not 100% sure about answering that question. But that's really, really, really important. Because you can actually get a lot of information about the cardiovascular system from the eye. So that is a really good thing to know. Okay. So when we talk about the retina, we said it's the functional part of the eye, and we said that's where your photoreceptors are. So your photoreceptors are rods and cones. So if your rods are stimulated, it's because there's not a lot of light. So you wake up in the middle of the night. How do you get from your bed to the toilet? Um, So you you can probably get there by closing your eyes, right, because you may have done it a thousand times. But if your eyes are open, do you see things? There
1: are
0: lots of Okay, if there's zero light, then there's nothing going in the pupil and none of this is being activated. If there's zero, zero light. But usually there's the moon or there's, I don't know, there's some kind of Three very small amount light, of light, light. right? Yeah. So you'll be able to see shapes. Because you're seeing grays, whites, and blacks. Okay, you're probably not seeing blacks because not enough or whites because there's not enough color, but you're seeing shapes of grays and blacks, right? That's because in low light your rods get stimulated and your rods allow you to see gray, whites, and blacks. Really shades of gray, that's really what it is. Whereas in the day, when you have lots of light, the rods, it's too much stimulation for the rods, so it shuts them down and it activates the cones. The cones allow you to see color. So, when there's lots of brightness, can you see all different kinds of colors? Yes. Because you're activating your cones. So, that green apple that's reflecting the green is actually hitting the green cone, and your cone's saying, okay, go back to the occipital um, cortex, and bing, hey, you see green. Perception occurs there, right? that why when there's a sudden bright light, like you go from darkness to bright light?
1: Yeah, and sometimes like there'll be like a, a
0: blackness yeah. because you're shutting off the cones, and then the uh, you're shutting off the rods, and the cones need to come in, and there could be a small, very small delay. Yeah. But yes, too much light the rods, right? Too much yeah. Well, they shut down. Yeah. If there's too much light, it's not their job. They don't. They don't know how to work in that environment, right? So what we need to know about these is that these photoreceptors are found in your retina which primarily is in your macula lutea, which is that very center part of the eye when you were looking at it through the ophthalmoscope. And then your two receptors are going to be rods and cones. Rods are grays, low light. Cones are lots of light, brightness. So what happens if you look at a green apple and it's red? <laughs> so you're gr- it, then for some reason, the red is being reflected. So everybody else in your life is telling you that it's green, but you're seeing red? I am very colorful. Okay, yeah. so, and i was going to say, so that would be usually being colorblind. So night blindness means that your rods aren't working. And colorblindness, you can be blind to just a specific color, which means out of the primary colors, you may not have a cone for red. You may not have a cone for yellow, right? So you just may not have those cones. Right, or just not, not. enough. If you don't have enough of them, you would still have a little bit. Like You would have your secondary colors rather than it being your primary colors. Um, typically, unless there's been some kind of severe trauma, you're usually born with a lack of cones. So, But a specific color of cones. Unless people are totally colorblind, then they have no cones. Um, but night blindness, so when we talk about people who can't drive at night because they have night blindness, that's because their rods are non functioning. Right, so good question. Okay, so let's talk about, yeah, yeah, Okay, so we gotta talk about this first, hold on. So, here we go. We're going and we're gonna track back our visual stimulus. Okay. Anything you are looking at is called a visual field. Any part of your eye we call the retinal field. So, this out here, all of you guys out here, you guys are in my temporal visual field. Everything in here is in my nasal visual field. Okay? So, you guys are all in my visual field. Oh, somewhere nowhere near the So you're not in my eye yet, because I'm looking at you guys. That stimulation is outside. So everything outside of your eye is a visual field. So I either have a temporal visual field here on the left. I have a visual or temporal visual field on the right. okay? Or I have a nasal visual field, which just means my center vision. Okay. So when light hits, we said it does not go directly. Everything goes on an angle. So when I have a temporal visual field, so you guys over here are hitting my nasal retinal field because you come in on an angle. Does that make sense? So temporal visual field hits nasal visual field. Temporal visual field hits nasal retinal field. Uh. Right, because it's in the eye, retina. Whereas my nasal, visual fields hit my temporal retinal fields because everything goes on an angle. So exactly what we drew here. Temporal visual field is going to go to my nasal retinal field. Temporal visual field is gonna go to my nasal retinal field. My nasal visual field, which is in here, is gonna go to my temporal retinal field and same thing on the other side. Okay, so how are we doing with this so far? Okay, so now, all of your temporal retinal fields stay on the same side, okay? So my temporal visual fields are gonna stay on the same side. My temporal, my, sorry, my nasal, I need red. My nasal retinal fields cross. My nasal retinal fields cross. Where are they crossing? Hold on. <laughs> We're getting to that. But before we talk about where they're crossing to, we've got to talk about the crossing. So this part right here, where you have the crossing of nasal, visual, or nasal retinal fields, is going to be known as the optic chiasm. Now that should sound familiar. Yeah. Yes. Why does it sound familiar? Is Where is that? Uh, that's what the optic nerve has to go through. Well, part of it, half of, half of it, because it's going to separate. But do you remember it crosses, and it's, something's right underneath it, and if and there's a tumor there, reversed. it can compress yeah, on yeah. it the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland are right there. So if you had a pituitary adenoma, for example, which is a benign tumor, but if it were to grow, it could grow and now compress the optic chiasm. So let's just say that happened. So let's just say we had damage, we had a pituitary adenoma, let's just say it's benign because who wants to have a malignant, and it grows and it hits on the optic chiasm, then what do you lose? Track it back. You don't have information coming in from the nasal retinal fields, which means you lose temporal visual fields. So when people talk about when you do this and they're like, yep, don't see it, yep, don't see it, yep, don't see it, could that be an indication of the optic chiasm being damaged? So you might want to start asking questions about the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland. Right? That is super cool. So just knowing the anatomy, you can start to figure out where the problems might be. Okay. Now, again, you have all this information, you can do these tests. You're not going to diagnose anybody, but if you were to do these tests, now would you want to refer them to an ophthalmologist, to an optometrist, or maybe to an endocrinologist? Wait, if I did this test and I was thinking maybe it was a pituitary gland, I'm probably going to refer them back, ask for a head MRI, and I'm also going to say, maybe go see an endocrinologist because this is what I think is going on. So now at least you can get them in the right area rather than saying, oh, just go see your optometrist, right? Because what's an optometrist going to do for a pituitary gland? Nothing. What's an ophthalmologist going to do for a pituitary gland? Nothing. They do surgery on the eye, right? So this is why, again, you guys are healthcare professionals, right? Yes, I know we focus a lot on musculoskeletal stuff, but having all this information allows you to now get the patient hopefully seen by the specialist within three to six months, maybe eight months, rather than three years because they've been to four other specialists, right? Okay, so we know about the optic chiasm, which is the crossing of the nasal retinal fields. And we know that that's just on top of that pituitary gland. Okay, so after the crossing of the optic chiasm, when, When these nerves come together, okay, so when the opposite nasal retinal field comes together with the same side temporal retinal field, this is known as your optic tract. So your optic tract is then gonna go, of course, everything goes to the thalamus. We already know that, right? We don't really have to write that in because everybody knows everything goes to the thalamus. But eventually, where's this optic tract gonna go to? Yeah, the primary visual cortex, which is in the Uh, occiput. And that's where you perceive your information from the light, the rods and cones. So if you were to damage your primary visual cortex right here, okay, I don't know, you were on the ice and you slammed the left side of the back of the head. Trail back what you would lose. So if I have a visual cortex damage, I'm going to lose temporal visual fields on the opposite side, and I lose nasal visual fields on the same side. So that's how you know it's a primary visual cortex issue because now you lose this. So if you just draw this, you can trail it back and figure out what is the symptom the patient's complaining of. Now, let's just say that these, okay, I, I drew this not exactly anatomically correct because, you know, these actually come out together, right? These actually come out together in the cranial nerve number two. So we're just going to do this. So this is your cranial nerve number two. This is your optic nerve. So when cranial nerve number two gets damaged, what do you lose? The, is oh, no, no, do I have... This eye, let's say this is my left eye. Do I have my left nasal visual field? No. no. Do I have my left temporal visual field? No. So when you have an optic nerve damage, you just lose that eye. It's this. I can't see anything. So now, just by what people tell you, what vision says lost, you should be able to get an idea of where the damage is. Wow. Yeah. So what did you call the light? The light refracting or the, the bending? Yeah, yeah. light refracts through the lens so it's going to come in on an angle. As long as you know that I'm very happy. So how are we doing with this? So we definitely need to know about the three layers of the eye, all the components. We need to know about the autonomic components, so the ciliary body and the lens. We need to know that's innervated by cranial nerve number three. And we need to know about the pathway of how light hits, goes through into the retina and then how it gets to the Optic chiasm, if it's the temporal visual fields, which are the nasal retinal fields, and then it's gonna hit the optic tract, which then it's gonna go to the thalamus, which we already knew that, and then the primary visual cortex. So if we're happy with this drawing, then you can really just track it back and figure out what the problems are. Cool. Okay, do you guys wanna take a break? Yes. Yeah, there's not much left to do. It's basically just the vestibulocochlear cochlear nerve, but <clears throat> yeah, let's take a break. So, let's come back at uh, 5 uh, what is that? 5 10. So, 10 2, like 15 minutes. Oh, yeah. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. notice that Yeah, she just had a kid. She's like a year old. It's true that females have more combs than males? We're talking about that he's more colorblind. No, it's just, you know, there's like 20 shades of white. I really haven't, I, I also haven't done any research on that to be honest, no, that's but a good, I've yeah. never <laughs> I've never actually mm-hmm. seen More scientific or heard of anybody speak of scientific mm-hmm. evidence with regards to that, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I actually mm-hmm. have not really mm-hmm. researched it. Like, there's mm-hmm. lots of journals like mm-hmm. Ophthal- mm-hmm. Ophthal- mm-hmm. Ophthal- mm-hmm. ophthalmologist, ophthalmologist mm-hmm. journalists. Mm-hmm. I think New England mm-hmm. or I think or whatever mm-hmm. in like the mm-hmm. Americas or something. Right. They would probably have some mm-hmm. research on that. Um, mm-hmm. We should just ask China. They don't everything. Could it be, so here's my question to you though, could it be an adaptation thing? Could it be that colors are not as important to you, so you haven't developed that specificity as much in your cones as, for example, she has, because she studied design and has put a lot of intention into developing that. Right. Could it be so an it's more like a choice? Well, but I, and and this, this is what I'm saying, I'm not sure, but could it be a choice or could it be over pro-sexual? Nature over nature. Right. Versus just like you're born with this. All males are born with this and all females. I've heard, and also I've heard another thing about peripheral vision. Women have better peripheral vision than men. Yeah. Yeah. I've never heard that. I don't. Know. I only heard that you have perfect. Perfect. Only what's that? Winn Kirstie so has a so perfect, perfect perfect impression um, um, uh, yeah. I over here yeah oh I can't see that, that's my point. there yeah um, for what? With perfect are you? Progress. like that's why I'm uh, you, you can see all no, ah uh, that's uh, true no, no, no. no, no. I no what my now. is yes yeah go it's awesome, like, I really it's gotta, it. Really gotta do I think it Which one's poisoning And So that's why when you see the pictures, they're normal. No, because it gets All the colors <laughs> are wrong. No. Oh yeah. wow. Really? I did not know that. I was gonna say, why would you eat
1: paint?
0: They used to mix it with the saliva. That would probably make it unique, right? Individual, maybe. Yeah. Uh, a lot of teachers uh, actually uh, use blood. They're still getting a lot of hair, dry hair dry dry and fluids to so make it like, Because when it dries like, it's like, 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 a bit of unique right. color. Right, Yeah. Mm. interesting. The art is just crazy. Uh, interesting. Okay, just before we finish vision, I should have mentioned this before break, but I totally forgot. So we talked about the receptors, the rods and cones, and the retinal layer that are going to go to the optic disc, and then the optic chiasm, and then the optic tract, which then is going to go to the thalamus and the primary visual cortex. So we already knew that. But on its way up, it can stop off. Remember your superior inferior colliculi in the midbrain, which is known as your tectum? Okay, so the inferior colliculi are for your auditory senses, and the vision, and then the upper, the superior colliculi are for your visual reflexes, right? And that startle reflex. So you will have visual information going to the midbrain, going into the superior to be able to give information if you need to ha- do that startle reflex. It'll give the visual information for that startle reflex. The other thing we will also have is information will go a little bit to the thalamus, the hypothalamus, sorry. And the reason to go to the hypothalamus is if there's a lot of light. So, remember, your hypothalamus has your epithalamus, your hypothalamus. Are you asking us already? You... <laughs> Give her a second to raise her head. This whole week I've been A pituitary gland. So in that diencephalon the epithalamus is the not so important part that we had talked about because the hypothalamus obviously is super super important but the not so important part the epithalamus has the pineal gland in it and the pineal gland if you remember releases melatonin so in a lot of light would you typically release a lot of melatonin do you want to sleep with a lot of light No. no no So your melatonin decreases with a lot of light. So again, a lot of visual input would then not stimulate the epithalamus because the pineal gland won't stimulate melatonin. But now, shut down all the lights, now there's very little visual information. That's going to tell the epithalamus, which is the pineal gland, hey, by the way, there's not a lot of light, so maybe you should start secreting melatonin because maybe it's time to sleep. So there is gonna be some visual input going into the um, epithalamus, which is the pineal gland, to be able to help with the circadian rhythm, whether or not you should be sleeping or not, right? So that's gonna be part of that um, hypothalamus is what's controlled the endocrine gland and then the pineal gland is in that. Okay, so this is exactly what we drew. So if you read this, it says the right half of each visual field conveys to the left side of the brain. So the right half of each visual field. So this is the right half of this eye, and this is the right half of this eye. So if you remember, they do this. Right? So then this one is going to cross over, and it's going to go to the opposite side hemisphere. right? So it's exactly what we just drew. The right sides. Of the visual fields are gonna go to the opposite visual cortex to the left visual cortex right so that's all that's saying if you draw this you know what it's saying okay. all right and we already talked about those damages and diseases we talked about night blindness and colorblindness okay so of course the primary visual cortex is in the occipital lobe so if you hit the back of your head you could lose visual information, the perception of visual information. So even though your craniove number two is working, you may not be able to receive any information should you damage the occipital lobe, right? Okay, the anatomy of the ear. Okay, let's talk a little bit about, this is not testable information, but I do think it's important information to have just for life or as a practitioner. Um, And it's talking about ear infection. Okay, if I have an external ear infection versus a middle ear infection versus an inner ear infection. Okay, so let's talk about the anatomy and then we'll talk about how we distinguish between those so the external part of the ear is basically everything from like touching your ear okay so this top part of the ear is known as the pina or the oracle and then the bottom part is known as the lobule so the external part of the ear is going to include the oracle and the lobule as well as this auditory meatus this external auditory meatus which is where you can put your finger you're not going to go all the way to here because You'll probably only get to about here, but you could put your finger and start feeling the external auditory medius, which is this canal that has external environment in it, right? Like the air from the external environment. As soon as it hits the tympanic membrane, you're now done with the external ear. Okay? So from tympanic membrane, laterally is the external ear. When you, hit, when you go inside of the tympanic membrane, so right in here, so right after the tympanic membrane, we're going to have three auditory ossicles. And if you remember, these are the smallest <laughs> bones in the axial skeleton. The smallest bones. Small bones. A small bones. Yes, yeah, smallest bones in the axial skeleton. So coming off of the tympanic membrane, we're going to have the malleus, then we're going to have the incus, and then we're going to have the stapes. These malleus incis and stapes, which are your auditory ossicles, are found in the middle ear. Now, something else found in the middle ear is this tube right here. This pharyngotympanic tube, also known as eustachian tube, which basically brings information, or guck, from your throat up to your middle ear. So pharyngopharynx tympanic ear. So it tells you exactly where it starts and where it goes to. So, <clears throat> if I had Streptococcus pyogenes, so strep throat, for example, right? So strep throat could then that bacteria could then that Streptococcus pyogenes could then travel up my eustachian tube, my eardrum, tube, and then bacteria in here, warm, moist, closed environment, bacteria, perfect, perfect for breeding. So what are you going to end up with? a middle ear infection. Okay, so we're gonna talk about how you can test to get an idea of whether or not it is a middle ear infection. But you should know the things that are in the middle ear, so malleus incus and stapes, so your three auditory ossicles and your pharyngotympanic tube is the reason why you end up, when you have a throat infection, that sometimes you end up with a middle ear infection because there's a tube that'll bring all that bad stuff right up to the middle ear. Now, if you've got a whole bunch of bacteria and stuff Propagating in here. What do you think is going to happen to this tympanic membrane? It's so it's 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 like this right now. What do you think is going to happen? It's going to yeah. it's going to bulge. So when you actually go in with an otoscope and you look at it, you're going to see first of all that it's like bulging towards you, which is a good indication that there's a middle ear infection, and you're going to see that it's really reddish, right? pinkish, right, because usually it should come off white. So that gives you a very good indication again that there's a middle ear infection. So that's why they look in the ear, right? To see how's the tympanic membrane and what's the color. They're also gonna be looking through here just to see if there's any blockages or things like that. So we're happy with the middle ear. So as soon as we hit the incus, the incus is going to attach itself to the oval window. So it's basically like a teensy-meensy little hole in this area right here, okay? And that's called the oval window. It is actually like a hole where incus would basically do this to it. You mean stapes. Yeah, oh, stapes, sorry. Yeah, yeah, Not like stapies, stapies. yeah. yeah. Stapes is going to do that to it. So once you get to this oval window, you're going to have this area here, this enlargement. There's a better picture. So you're going to have this enlargement right here, which is known as the vestibule. Then from the vestibule, you're gonna have these three circular structures coming off of it, known as semicircular canals, because it's like half of a circle. Okay, so semicircular canals. They're in the X, Y, and Z plane. You know in math, you have X and Y, and then you have one that goes out towards you. Yeah. So your X, Y, and Z plane, that's exactly your semicircular canals. Okay? So what it allows you to do is when you move this way, you're gonna be along that X plane. When you move this way, you're going to be along that Y plane, and when you move this way, you're going to be along that Z plane. So now you can indicate to your brain how you're moving because you're going to have movement going into each of these semicircular canals, which is going to give information to the brain. Okay? So the vestibule here and these semicircular canals, this is part of your dynamic and static equilibrium, equilibrium balance. Then part of the, uh, the other part of the inner ear is going to be this thing right here, which is called the cochlea. The cochlea looks like a snail, a snail. thank you, I was like, what is that, or a cock shell. Yeah. Um, and this is where your hearing is going to happen. Okay, so in the inner ear, this is truly where you have balance and hearing occurring. In the middle ear, you just have vibration being transmitted. In the external ear, you just have sound and air being transmitted but where you actually get the dendrites being stimulated and the action potential going through cranial number eight it is happening in the semicircular canals for the vest for the balance part and it's happening in the cochlea for the hearing part okay so let's talk about external ear infections so if i had an external ear infection typically it means that this canal here is inflamed so how do you think you would test for this Well, if you had an otoscope, you could look, but if you don't have an otoscope, what could you do? Ask them what? I don't know, I have ear pain. Well, when so where they, when feel, where they feel, where do they feel it? When they My whole ear is throbbing. Okay, that's a good point. Does it impact your healing? Does it cause dizziness? Okay, if it doesn't do those things, probably it's not the inner ear. Okay, I would agree but what could you do? So, if I have inflammation here, if I moved this, if, if you have inflammation in your finger and you move your finger, what happens? It hurts. Okay. So, move the area. So, that's exactly what you're going to do. You're going to take the lobule. If I take the lobule and I pull it down or backwards, is that going to change the shape of this canal? Yes. Is that possibly going to be painful? Yes. Yes! So, when you pull down, pull out This, if you move this or even do this, if that that hurts, you're moving this. That's a very strong indication it's an external ear infection. Are you going to tell them to go get antibiotics? No, it's an external ear infection, go get (laughs) drops. Right? Or, go get someone to look at your ear and see if there's a blockage, because there could be a lot of inflammation because of a blockage. Okay, so that's one of the ways that you would test for an external ear infection. Now, how would you test for a middle ear infection? So, balance is going to be inner ear. So, I want to go in here. So, when you get them to stand on one foot or try to balance? No, that's <laughs> so, that's still going to be inner ear or it'll be a cerebellar test. So, look at what bone is all around the middle ear. Temporal bone. Right. So, remember we talked about, I think we did anyways, um, tuning forks? Oh, yeah. So when we talked about a tuning fork, I think we did anyways, you hold the bottom here and the two forks you would usually tap on something metal, which then causes the vibration. Now this bottom part that you're holding on, you're not holding on super tight because you don't want to stop the vibration, it's just barely holding on. And you would put this end part on a bone that's fractured, that you think is fractured. If it caused pain, that would be a strong indication that you've just confirmed a fracture. If there was no sharp static pain, and it was just like, yeah, I feel the vibration, then that's a pretty strong indication that it's not a fracture. This is 80% accurate with regards to x-rays to be able to diagnose fractures. Now, even x-rays are not great because you need 30% bone destruction before you can actually see it on an x-ray. So really, if an x-ray comes back negative but you're still thinking it's a fracture, make sure they get a CT, right? But anyways, with regards to a tuning forks, so they can be a good indicator of fractures. And the reason why is because this vibration is bones very sensitive to vibration. So when you submit this vibration into bone and it vibrates the bone, it causes periosteal movement, which is nerve fibers, which causes pain. So if you were to put that on the mastoid process or you were even to tap on the mastoid process, you're putting vibration through that bone. If you put vibration through that bone, will you be stimulating this area that's already really compressed? Yes. So that's typically what you would do, you could press on this, you could tap on it, you could put a um, tuning fork at the back of it, and if it causes you significant pain, that's one of the ways you would have an indication that's a middle ear infection, and of course you would have asked the question, has your throat been sore, have you had a cold, have you had a flu, because if something like that was going on, it could have travelled up into the middle ear, right? Because the middle ear is a closed environment except for with the throat. So typically if you have a middle ear infection, it's usually because you've had something in the throat. So of course you would ask that question. And then if you were thinking there was an internal ear infection, you would usually have some kind of other hearing problem, like a tinnitus maybe, um, or decreased hearing acuity, or you would have a vestibular issue, which means a balance issue, right? Your balance might be a little bit off. So that's kind of the idea with this. So if someone does come in and tell you they have an ear infection, You're not going to say, oh, it's an external infection, go get ear drops. But you could do the test and say, hmm, looks like it might be an external ear infection. You might want to go get your doctor to take a look at it because I think drops would probably be better than an antibiotic. But go see your doctor for it. But you're already telling them so that when they get to the doctor, they're like, I think I have an external ear infection. Okay, so don't prescribe antibiotics because that's going to be useless. But if you had a middle ear infection, so pain when you touch the mastoid process, are drops going to do anything? No. Drops stop at the, t- at the tympanic membrane. Mm-hmm. So your drops are going to go right to here, and they stop right here. <clears throat> so your drops aren't going to do anything from here. So really, you've got to take the antibiotics if you've got a middle ear infection, right? Because that's the only way you can actually get rid of if it's bacterial. If it's parasitic, fungal, or viral, don't take antibiotics, obviously. So hopefully, they would have done a throat swab and figured out that it was bacterial, and then, of course, they'll give you antibiotics, which will deal with the... Middle ear infection. It well, I mean, it's it's overprescribed and overutilized, and then when it is utilized, it's used not utilized for the whole amount of time it's supposed to be, which now means that you're just creating bugs that are going to be resistant. It's really not very great. Okay, so here's a very clean picture of your middle ear. So your middle ear is from the tympanic membrane. Until you get to the oval window. So you have this space in here with your malleus, incus, and stapes, and then you have your finger tympanic tube. And then here's a very good picture of your internal ear. So here's your stapes. So right on this side of the stapes would be known as your oval window. And then in this area, this is all called the vestibule. Now the vestibule has two important receptors known as the saccule and utricule. So the saccule and utricule would be these. And these are responsible for static equilibrium. Meaning I'm not, my head's not bouncing all over the place. So deceleration and acceleration, right? That kind of stuff in the same plane, like walking fast, slow, or going with gravity, nodding. So these, so the utricle and the saccule, which are found in the vestibule give you, we talk about static equilibrium, hint, hint. Whereas these guys, these semicircular canals, which are in your X, Y, and Z plane, which we call anterior lateral and posterior, these have enlargements right here, which are known as ampoulas. And these ampoulas are where your primary receptors are for dynamic equilibrium. So you decide to jump and move your head, I don't know, right? All of these guys are being activated, these ampoulas. And now that's telling your brain that there's dynamic equilibrium, which of course is gonna give information to your cerebellum, because your cerebellum contributes a lot to balance, right? How many are there? There's an ampulla for each semicircular canal. Oh. And then there's the utricule and saccule, you can kind of say are enlargements or ampullas for the vestibule, but we don't call them that. We just call them utricule and saccule. So but you're not gonna ask that? No, but what you do need to know is what is the receptor for dynamic equilibrium and what is the receptor for static equilibrium. What right? was the receptor for static again? For static, it's your utricule and saccule, which is part of your vestibule. So which saccule? The utricule and saccule. So the uh, utricule and saccule, which is part of the vestibule. The vestibule is The, the vestibule is this whole large area and the Yuchiko and Sakyo will be those ampulas of them. And then your dynamic equilibrium is going to be these X, Y, and Z planes, your semicircular canals, and where that primarily happens is in the ampulas. Okay, and then your cochlea we're going to have for hearing. Okay, so that's just telling you the exact same thing. So we're going to talk about the organ of corti. The organ of corti Okay, so this is actually a picture of it, but I find it very difficult to read that. So your organ of Corti is going to be in here. So when we talk about the cochlea, okay, how you get a greater potential and the action potential, either from your semicircular canals or from your cochlea, is movement of fluid. When fluid moves, it then moves the organs like the cilia and the organs which then causes the receptor, the dendrite, to be stimulated which then will cause a greater potential to a natural potential, okay? So what ends up happening, if we're looking at the cochlea, so here's your stapes attaching to your oval window, so let's go backwards. Sound comes in to the external auditory meatus, hits the tympanic membrane, so the tympanic membrane vibrates, vibrates the malleus, vibrates the incis, vibrates the stapes. These guys are super sensitive. They'll actually increase the vibration 20 times from the tympanic membrane to the oval window. Yeah, they enhance it. Which, we're going to talk about two things that are going to de it. I don't think that's a word, but you know what I mean. <laughs> so, from the tympanic membrane, this vibration here goes... It's like way faster. Hits the oval window, which now there's fluid here. Okay, this is called perilymph. So the perilymph, peri means around. So we're going to have fluid around the organ of corti, which is here. So we're going to have perilymph movement because it moves this, which is going to cause movement of the fluid. This movement of the fluid is found in the scala tympana and the scala vestibuli, which is just this area all right here. When this fluid is moving, it'll actually push on the organ of corti. It pushes in on it. Okay. Once this organ of Corti gets pushed on, there's fluid in here called endolymph, because it's inside. So once that endolymph starts to move, now that stimulates the cilia, which causes the dendrites to then be stimulated, which then causes a greater potential to an action potential, which is then going to cause it down the cochlear branch of the crater nerve number eight. Okay? That's only once that happens. Yeah. If there's if there's no vibration coming in, then all of this is still nothing's happening. Right. And they all work together. So it's it's almost like a train track, right? One, and then two, and then three, and then four, and then five, and then six, and then seven, and then eight is your organ of Corti, which then causes the dendrites to be the receptors, the dendrites to be stimulated. Yeah. So that's how you hear. So do we need to know that pathway too? You should have an idea about that pathway. I think I. The eye and the ear have pathways. <laughs> I think I put it. Yeah. Here you go. So external the meatus goes to the tympanic membrane, which then goes to malleus and stapes, which is then going to vibrate the oval window, which is then going to cause movement of the perilymph. Uh, okay, pressure waves in the scala. Okay, so that's perilymph when we're talking about the scala vestibuli and tympani, right, that's the perilymph that's going to move, which then causes pressure on the organ of corti, or we can talk about the cochlear duct, that's also known as the organ of corti, which then moves the endolymph, which then causes your greater potential, because it's going to stimulate your receptors. Those are going to eventually go, like we said, the cochlear branch of nerve number eight, because that's the hearing part of it, which goes to the medulla. Um, It has a stop off in the medulla. Obviously, it's going to go to the thalamus, and then it's going to go to your primary auditory cortex, which is in the temporal lobe. So that is the process of how you hear. Oh, look. Oh, look. Yay. Okay. So you are going to have... So from the um, cochlear division, it's going to go up into the primary centers in the medulla, so it's going to have an auditory primary center in the medulla, which is then going to go up into the thalamus, and then it's going to go into the primary auditory cortex, which is in the temporal lobe. So we're happy with that. Okay, so we've already talked about this. The vestibular part is for static equilibrium. So saccule and utricule are static equilibrium, whereas your semicircular canals... are more for all the movements that you have. So that's dynamic equilibrium. Okay, so here's my question. Let's just say that I tilt my head this way and I should have now in those semicircular canals, I should have fluid movement in that semicircular canal. But let's just say so if there's little crystals in the semicircular canals <clears throat> let's just say now that the crystals don't move if the crystals don't move then there's no action potential which means there's no information from my vestibular part going to the brain but yet my eyes said i moved my cervical spine told my brain i moved so now what happens <laughs> Vertigo. that's when you don't feel good. That's when you get dizziness. That's when you get nauseous because you have conflicting information. But now, if I do this and my ear gives the same information as my eyes and as my cerebellum and as my, as my neck, it's all the same. Everybody's happy. We've confirmed that's what we're doing. And then that's what's done. Okay? So the usually the reason why you've got some kind of ill-feeling, nauseousness, vertigo is usually because there's Crossing of information. There's multiple places, I'm getting information to say where I am in space, or how I'm moving. And if those don't co- coincide, then your brain is like, I don't know what to do, but, right? <laughs> Basically. Yeah. That's how seasickness works then. Yeah, so seasickness, or when people read in the car, for example, right? So their eyes aren't moving. Yeah. So the eyes and the head are not moving, yet, I'm feeling a deceleration or an acceleration, so that's not working well with my brain. And that's the same with the bus, right? But, but then you look up, and now you have visual information that's saying, oh, yeah, stuff's coming in, stuff's coming in, stuff's coming in. Oh, yeah, so we are accelerating. Then I feel fine. I go back to my book where everything's static and I don't feel fine again. Now, but not everybody has that, right? But you, when your brain can't coincide information that's the same, you usually don't feel good. So, let's talk about this. uh, Benign positional vertigo, benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, BPPV. So, it's not caused by any kind of pathology, right? It's just something that we don't really understand. It's idiopathic, meaning we're all idiots and we don't really understand it. So, for some reason, we believe that BPPV is usually caused because the crystals in the ears when they're supposed to be moving in these semicircular canals to say, yeah, you're moving, they're now stuck. So when I say I'm moving, my semicircular canal says, no, you don't. And the rest of my brain says, yeah, you are. <laughs> and you want to be sick. So one of the ways to treat that, to test it, and then treat it, it's the exact same thing. It's a dick's pipe liver. Mm-hmm. So you know how you guys put someone? It's like a vertebral artery test. It's the exact same thing. <laughs> I was just about to say that. You know how you put someone supine, you take their head off of the table, and then you laterally flex, rotate, and extend, and you watch for nystagmus, and you're talking to them how you feel, you're checking for the vertebral artery insufficiency test. But at the same time, what you're doing is, you've now just activated all three semicircular canals. You went into lateral flexion, rotation, and extension. That's all three semicircular canals. So the idea of that is if you put your head in that position, and you get them to sit up quickly, the idea is that you're trying to get that fluid to move in those semicircular canals. So hopefully trying to dislodge those crystals. Otoliths is what we call them. Now, if that doesn't work, the ears telling the brain, no, there's no movement, and the rest of the brain saying, oh, yeah, there's a whole lot of movement, they may puke. OK? So how, if you do do this test or you do the treatment for it, have a bucket because you may have to do this numerous times. So that's how you would test it. If it was positive for that, that would give you an indication that it's probably the crystals that aren't moving in the semicircular canals. So you would say that's a positive x-hole-type You couldn't say it was BPPV. But it would give you an indication that it would be that, right? So the treatment is that test repetitively. So we put them back, sit but them up. they open. don't feel so sick. That's why you have a bucket. And <laughs> then some people, some people will say, I can't do it anymore. And that's okay. Is that the positive if they
1: throw? Up? <laughs> um, if they feel
0: or feel nauseous. So if they just don't feel good, it doesn't feel right, right? Cause Brain's yeah. not getting the right information from all the different parts. So they don't necessarily have to throw up, but it unfortunately is like it Calm. does happen. Um, I have probably only done this test, I don't know, in the last like 12 years, maybe seven or eight times. Like, yeah, it's not like I do this all the time. Um, I probably had had three people throw up. So you're like, can you well, do that because you have more scopes of practice? Because Anne well, like is like, it. we shouldn't. Who said you shouldn't? You're allowed to do it. Yeah, we can do. It. We're good. I just want to do it. it. <laughs> okay. Okay. I thought that it was the video when it was like a professional did it, so we weren't supposed to do it because yeah. they had to be like professional. okay. So, like, so, pretty much, scope. anybody can do this. Physios, osteos, chiros, massage therapists, uh, medical doctors, you name it. You can. A neurologist. Like, we all do it. I will say, like, there's a lot of practice that goes into it. Like, I know when I did in chiropractic, there was a lot of practice. When I did it in research therapy school, this is what we did. We learned the theory of it and how it applies. Okay. So if you're not comfortable doing it, that's fine. You can refer it to a, higher, a physio, an MD. Effort. But can you do this? Then you can't. Sure you sure can. can. It's an orthopedic assessment. Okay. It would be like doing Babinski's. Can you do Babinski's? Yeah. Not just neurologists can do Babinski's. You can test for upper motor neuron vision by doing Babinski's. Right. I just didn't realize that we could. We just learned it. You can do it. Yeah. I will we're, say. I what she, like, maybe I'm wrong, but I think what she means is like, don't we have to, like, we were always told that we have to learn it in theory and then in like an the seminar yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. okay. we usually learn it like I'm not in your pathology class. You can do it. <laughs> I will say it's it's not a nice test. If you get a positive retrieval insufficiency test, it's a little awkward. Not nice. Um, and it's really not a very nice treatment. But if you can get a positive result from it, it makes a huge difference in people's lives. So people will come to you and say they're experiencing vertigo and they don't know what it's happening. Right. Now, if you are not comfortable testing for where the vertigo is coming from, you can still do that test and you can try and do the treatments a couple of times. But if you're really not comfortable in knowing where the vertigo is coming from, I would probably refer back and say either see an ENT if you're thinking it's coming from the inner ear, or see a neurologist if you're coming if you think it's coming from the brain, right? Um, if it's BPPV, it's, it's benign and idiopathic, which means it's not be, it's not something harmful. Yeah, it's not peculiar, kill It's not a tumor. It's not. Um, but and we don't really understand why it. Happens. Now, Meniere's disease is a whole different story. If someone tells you they've been diagnosed with Meniere's disease, that's because of the pathology. Like, there's a pathological parasite in the middle ear, or in the in, inner ear. Um, we, can't, we can't fix that. Like, yeah, that's know. why what when you said, disease? like, a parasite? The, the. That's what it starts at. That's usually the beginning of it. So I actually had one of my patients who I do treat refer his significant other to me, I guess. And uh, she did tell me that she was diagnosed with menieres eight years ago, but it's been getting worse again over the last three, four years. So then yeah, I had to say, okay, just so that you know, I don't know if we're gonna have any impact on Meneers. Because menieres is not really something that you thinks. It's not. So, but she said in the past, when she's had manipulations into the neck and when she's had massage therapy into the neck, she's noticed that it's helped. So, the information coming from the neck and the cerebellum is now coinciding a little bit better, I guess, than it is with the inner ear. So, we can treat her for her symptoms, her neck and stuff, but would I ever say I'm treating her for her manears? No. I can't. Like, it's not, it's not something I can fix. I can treat all the stuff around it and maybe <laughs> contributing to that, right? But, BBBB, I mean, it is something that we can try and move the otoliths to get rid of that dizziness. So. Any chance to make some vomit? I'm not. Before. Awesome. Good luck, because if someone vomits, I vomit. So I really don't like that. Okay, so this is really important. We need to know what causes, what gives dynamic stimulation, what causes a greater potential to an action potential for dynamics, equilibrium, dynamic movements, and then what does for static movements. So this is going to be very important. So we already talked about the ampoulas, which is where you have your otoliths, that's where your crystals are, and then you've got this fluid movement throughout the whole semicircular canals. So we've talked about that, we're happy with that. Okay, so the same thing happens, Um, remember we talked about fluid movement in the cochlea? In the cochlea, in the cochlea, it's the exact same thing in the semicircular canals. So in the semicircular canals you've got these little hair-like structures, these cilia again, Moving among the fluids. So, if this fluid moves, it's going to stimulate the cilia, the otoliths are going to stimulate the cilia, which then stimulates a graded potential to then have an action potential to then go through the vestibular portion of cranial nerve number eight. This is all about fluid movement. Inner ear is fluid movement, period. That's how you get your graded potentials and your action potentials. That's just another. So, again, head movement will cause your semicircular canals to move your hair cells because the fluid's moving, which then causes your receptors to be stimulated, which then causes a greater potential and an action potential, and you're going to have information go through the vestibular part of creative nerve number eight, which is then going to go to the brain. Thalamus and then brain, which we're happy with. Okay, so this is what we were talking about. When you get information from your eyes that is not coinciding with your ear, right? So ocular motor as well as four, as well as six, greater than three, four, and six, are going to give information to the brain to say, okay, so your head is tilted 45 degrees. My semicircular canal say, nope, they're not. Doesn't coincide. I feel sick, right? Same thing with input from the cerebellum. But now if my head's tilted, the cerebellum can detect that from the spinal cerebellar tract, which is getting information to say, yep, yeah, the head's tilted 45 degrees to the right, I say the same thing and semicircular canals along my y-plane says the same thing everybody's good. everybody's good so I sense that information so we do have information coming in from the eyes and the head as well as the cerebellum that will also contribute to the information on equilibrium right balance so that's important all right so just a reminder: we should probably have an idea about our primary court, not for this test, but for, for the for the final. We should probably have an idea about our primary. How much is the test worth? 20 percent, and then the finals were twenty-five. Yeah. So that's it for special <clears throat> senses. So, any questions? We should know about the anatomy of these structures. We should know about the pathway of electrical stimulation. Now remember, there's only 12 questions. Right? So yes, review this lecture, but don't forget to review autonomic nervous system and make sure you know pain. Thank you, Andrea. Have a great, happy Everybody's good? Yes. Are you good? What did? Uh, <laughs> the fine fit. The fine fit? I didn't have any massive questions for you. you question. a okay. no. Do you have what? I think it's here this morning. What? The oh. deer's fine. <laughs> <laughs> the okay. Yeah. How are you? Oh, I'm going to shit myself. What's like that? The deer's okay? Yeah. So, keep going slow. No. We don't have a lot of time. I was my back road, they used to be in the stomach instead of retirement, it, they've potatoes were ridiculous. They just put a bunch of gravel. So it's like, uh, a loose gravel yeah. the downward, and the down, so I can't the ball down it as used like, to. So at most I was mean, doing like 70 and the grass is about this tall, so I couldn't see it at all. And suddenly just pops out. I floor flip, flip to the floor on the brakes and just caught like the tail end of it. No blood, or no dent in my car, like, like, this, like, just really? fur in my grills, <laughs> so I gave it a shave, but yeah, my license plate, was not cancer, but nothing was cracked, no blood, and it, it
1: didn't see the deer after, so it kept going, because like, it just kind
0: of, like, did for real I have, was going to say, it would have been in shock, so you just, just was it was injured, it wouldn't have taken off anyways. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. it was <laughs> so, we, we, we're we're so like, bad in that. Yeah, exactly <laughs> <I did. laughs> that's exactly what I did <laughs> after our buddy Park, like, like I'm I'm so failed. So your luck is just running out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This <laughs> time next <You're> year. <laughs> <like, laughs> oh, can I tell you that can I tell you that yeah, just need to all the same. Then we